Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show that Garth Drabinsky does not want you to hear, <laughs> but Jason Robert Brown definitely does. This is Monkeys and Playbills, and we're talking about Parade. We are so thrilled. I'm Jillian Willems. I'm Paul DeGurse. And joining us today from Boston is our friend, Broadway intellect? I would say Broadway, basically Broadway historian. Elliot Lazar. Elliot Lazar, welcome. Oh, thank you for that warm welcome. We're so excited. This is Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we discuss Broadway musicals that had runs of 100 performance or fewer on Broadway, not counting previews. And what the heck happened? And today we're discussing Jason Robert Brown's Parade. Previews began at the Vivian Beaumont Theatre at Lincoln Center on November 12th. 1998. It officially opened on December 17th, 1998, and it closed on February 28th, 1999, after 39 previews and a valiant 85 performances. I cannot believe this show is on our list. I was so surprised when I took a look at our list and saw that Parade was even an option for us to cover. Yes. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I've always known of Parade as a a very um, a legendary musical, mm-hmm. the um, the first Broadway musical of this legendary, to my generation, Broadway composer, musical theater composer, rather. And I'd known it by reputation, by its soundtrack, by the soundtrack of this cast. Mm-hmm. And so when I learned that it didn't even crack 100 performances in New York, that wasn't something I knew. I was very shocked. It is very surprising. So, Paul, what was your first experience with Parade? My first experience of Parade came as a, a, young, a young man, a young upstart little uh, musician and theater, musical theater aficionado of 17. I was in high school still, and it was March break. And my family had been planning on driving to Saskatchewan for March break, but a snowstorm, because we live in Winnipeg, prevented us from going. So I contacted a dear friend of mine saying, I'm not going to Saskatchewan, I've got a week off. Burn me CDs of two of your favorite, two of your favorite musicals. I want to listen to two new musicals. And my friend burned me two CDs, one of Stephen Schwartz's Children of Eden and one of Jason Robert Brown's Parade. Wow. I spent the whole week off from school wandering around the, um, the suburban north end of Winnipeg, Garden City and the Maples. (laughs) Yeah, Garden City. (laughs) With my portable CD player and a pair of headphones and a, um... A CD booklet with two burnt CDs, switching back and forth between listening to Stephen Schwartz's Children of Eden <laughs> and Jason Robert Brown's Parade. And I have a lot of fond wow. memories of that, of a, um, a time when it just felt so cool to be listening and experiencing musical theater, not thinking about it as a business or about a um, career advancement or how, just enjoying it for the beautiful art that it was. Mm-hmm. When did you first hear Parade? When did Parade come first come into your life? Well, you know, like uh, like so many teenagers that are obsessed with musical theater, I fell hard and fast for the music of Jason Robert Brown. Oh, yes. And uh, during one such deep dive, I found an anthology of his music that had been published, and I went through everything uh, looking for songs that I could sing. As a, as a 16, 17-year-old who... Uh, whose top end of the voice had yet to really develop, I was over the moon to find that there was a song called It's Hard to Speak My Heart 
that oh, was yes. right in my in my usable range. And I thought, <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to use this for everything. It's this amazing song. It's got falsetto in it. And I read, and the first page is there, and I thought, oh yeah, this is dramatic. I can feel like a real artist singing this. And then I get to the line, I never touched that girl. Oh no. And I thought, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we don't do this song, but that was my that was my first entree into the music of parade. Was oh wow, this is good. Oh oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> Maybe, maybe in a year or three. Yep. <laughs> oh wow. And then correct me if I'm wrong. You did have the chance to actually play Leo Frank, right, Elliot, at um, at Opera Nuova in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did it in Edmonton back in 2016, where I was. Slightly more age appropriate totally. for the role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was really, it was a, a dream come true. Is the first thing I did, or one of the first things I did right after graduating. And what was cool was, I think a week before I flew to Edmonton, I found out that Brent Carver, who we'll be talking about later, um, was going to be there and with us in rehearsal and for the program. <gasps> oh for, my gosh! Yeah, it was a crazy, crazy whirlwind, whirlwind adventure. I cannot wait to talk a lot more about that experience and Brent Carver. But first, Jillian, when did you first hear Parade? (laughs) The first time I heard the whole soundtrack was two days ago. No! Oh my god. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. We're taking our sweet time here, but it's just so good to be back. We just got back from a Christmas hiatus, a holiday hiatus. Mm -hmm. And it is so, it feels so friggin' good to be chatting with people again, to be talking about this stuff again. Let's get into it. Elliot, I don't know if you know this, but um, there's a fun game we like to play on the pod mm-hmm. where Paul and guest will try to give a synopsis of the show we are discussing, and then I follow it up with the actual synopsis, usually more concise. I was going to say it's a bizarre <laughs> thing this time because both Elliot and I were very familiar with this show going in already. Mm-hmm. So what if we add another layer to this? Why don't you try to do the most concise synopsis you possibly can? Yep. And then we'll see see how you did. All right. As concise as possible. (laughs) Parade is about a Jewish man who lives in the South who is wrongfully accused of uh, of murdering a young woman. And, oh, it's hard to be concise. You're doing it, though. Anti-Semitism, anti, anti-Semitism. Am I saying that right? Yeah, anti-Semitism. But what about it? <laughs> <laughs> Anti-Semitism in the Deep South mm-hmm. causes him to be considered seriously as uh, someone who could have committed this crime, even though there's not a ton of evidence pointing towards him. Mm-hmm. He ends up being found guilty but his wife, up until now, him and his wife haven't had a super strong relationship. Mm-hmm. But his wife pursues justice and ends up getting the uh, the DA to reopen the case and get him acquitted. Mm-hmm. But then he's um, he's killed by an anti-Semitic mob. It is a true story of a really horrific part of history that led to the creation of the Anti-Defamation League. Yeah, and the uh, resurfacing of the once dormant Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. That's right. Not as good. I like, I'm, I'm pro one of those things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we like the ADL yeah. for sure. Needless yep. to say. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did I do? 
Elliot, did I miss anything important? I think I think you hit all the major points. I mean, I when I heard brief, I, I you know I was gonna say like they got the wrong guy. Yeah, <laughs> but but that is that is more or less uh, what goes on. Yeah, we have a a lar- uh, essentially loveless marriage in Atlanta, Georgia, between a New York Jew and an Atlantan Jew, and uh, the New York Jew is accused of the murder of a young woman and uh, is wrongfully uh, yeah is wrongfully accused and sentenced to uh, death and then when the sentence gets commuted to life in prison thanks to his wife's work to do that he gets uh, he gets abducted from the prison and lynched by a mob yeah and it's a musical it's a it's a tough <laughs> pill to swallow it's a hell of a story it really is made all the more horrific by the fact that it is true and it's a true story yeah jill what is if we were to look this up officially what would the plot synopsis be okay so this one's directly from mti and this is very short and doesn't include some of the better details that the two of you included but here it is in 1913 leo frank a brooklyn raised jew living in georgia is put on trial for the murder of 13 year old mary fagan a factory worker under his employ Already guilty in the eyes of everyone around him, a sensationalist publisher and a janitor's false testimony steal Leo's fate. His only defenders are a governor with a conscience and eventually his assimilated southern wife who finds the strength and love to become his greatest champion. Yeah. I mean, that's it. That's the show. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's talk about a little bit of history behind this show first, because as we're already kind of getting at, this is a very fascinating piece of theater. It's something you wouldn't expect to be a piece of musical theater, especially. Mm-hmm. It's a very important story, and it's a story with a lot to say, so you would think, absolutely, put this on stage. But to set it to music is a is something that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Mm-hmm. This is coming out of the late 80s, early 90s boom, where both Stephen Sondheim has kind of just passed what I would say would be his his peak as far as elevating musical theater Mm -hmm. we've had a couple of mega musicals based on things that you also wouldn't necessarily expect to be musicals both um les mis um based on um a very long hard to get through french novel yep and cats based on a series of poems and those have both been just monster hits Mm -hmm. and live ent one of the producers of this just had a monster (laughs) hit a few years ago Oh, and we're going to talk a lot about Live End. Just had a monster hit a few years ago with Brent Carver in Kiss of the Spider Woman. Mm -hmm. Which is another very bizarre musical that just works. It works very well. Even though looking back on it and knowing that it really didn't hit in New York, it's very easy to to say, well, yeah, you're trying to tell a really tragic story through an art form that you would typically associate with uh, kick lines and chorus girls. Mm Mm-hmm. If you actually consider the context of what is happening at this time, it makes a lot of sense. So much so that Stephen Sondheim was initially approached to write the music, approached by Hal Prince, who had um, been Stephen Sondheim's artistic partner in a lot of uh, productions and had been a creative, driving creative force in many of the productions I just mentioned. Mm-hmm approached Stephen Sondheim about writing the music. Stephen Sondheim said, no, I just wrote Passions. I want to write something lighter. That's This is a future plug for our Passions episode, which is going to be a heck of an episode. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Because Passions is a heck of a show. <laughs> uh, 
And so instead, Hal Prince listened to his daughter, also a director, Daisy Prince, who said, I just directed a piece by this really young 24-year-old composer. He was 24? He was 24 when he wrote Parade. There's this young guy named Jason Robert Brown. I just directed a collection of his cabaret pieces. Not even a book musical. A collection of his cabaret pieces called Songs for a New World. He's brilliant. Bring him on to be the composing driving force behind this enormous project that is adapting the Leo Frank trials into a musical. Why did I think that Songs was after? Nope. Um, I believe... Am I correct, Elliot? It was songs, then this, then last five years, as far as Jason Robert Brown goes? Yeah. As a musical theater historian. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we, uh, yeah, uh, Songs for a New World came first, and then yep. Parade was his first big Broadway show. And then I believe, yeah, last five years wasn't until I think 2002. Two or three, yeah. Yeah. And then um, before that, he might have, Urban Cowboy might have also been a thing, which he contributed a song or two to, which was Broadway. But I think that was also in a couple years after Parade. Before this, Jason Robert Brown has been a young 20-something working as a musical director, rehearsal pianist, and arranger on Broadway shows, Mm -hmm. including as the rehearsal pianist on Kiss of the Spider Woman. Okay. Mm -hmm. And between that and Daisy Prince, Hal's daughter, um, being more connected to the indie Broadway scene and going, this guy's the real deal. That's how um, Jason Robert Brown got the gig. And I actually, I was reading just before uh, we got on today an old interview with Jason Robert Brown from when Parade was running. Yes. And apparently he had gotten close to Hal through working on Kiss of the Spider Woman and on another uh, Michael John Lacusa show. And to the point where Hal Prince bought him a dog. <laughs> Uh, because Hal Prince already had two dogs, but he loved this dog. He and his wife loved this dog, and they named him Bernstein or Bernstein. <laughs> and and Hal Prince was so invested in the life of this dog that he would ask Jason to walk the dog across Central Park to go say hi to Hal and his wife. And so this initial discussion of... I, I want you to write for this project, maybe, occurred on one such walk through Central Park where Hal was like, hey, next time we uh, you take Bernstein over, we need to talk about something. Oh, that's wow. so funny. Yeah. That's incredible. I love it. And Jason Robert Brown said, Hal, it's about dogs. <laughs> Have you guys seen that clip? That's Hal talking about um, cats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's, he's talking about Andrew Lloyd Webber talking to him about cats or something like that. And he's like... Andrew, what's it about? What is this show about? And Andrew, Andrew Weber apparently said to Hal, to Hal Prince, Hal, it's about cats. (laughs) (laughs) That is funny. (laughs) Music and lyrics by J.R.B. In case you don't know, that's Jason Robert Brown. Book by Alfred Urey. Music was orchestrated by Don Sebesky. And then it features hymns by Lowell Mason and songs with lyrics by William Cooper, the poet. Um, and then it was conceived by Hal Prince. I hate this music. Ba-dum-tsh. What a bad score. Ba-dum-tsh. This score is no good. <laughs> okay, that was your three. That's your comedy in threes. Do you want to hear something fascinating? Jason Robert Brown has had, what are four or five shows on Broadway? We could cover almost any of them on this podcast, and only one of them not, and that's because it just got like 106 performances. 
I'm sorry, what? What is, which one is that? 13 oh. is the only one to have cracked 100 and even then You're just barely. Me. Isn't that fascinating? Jason Robert Brown, considered by many one of the best and most prominent musical theater composers of the 21st century, has never had, has only had one show that lasted over 100 performances on Broadway. And despite that, he's got like four Tony Awards or something like that. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, right? So all of this to say, and all those those very funny jokes I was just making before um, aside, <laughs> I think this is um, one of the best scores of the last 30 years. Ooh. Mm. Can you pinpoint a few reasons why you feel that way? Absolutely. I think this driving percussive style that Jason Robert Brown was one of the early pioneers of went on to affect many Broadway composers, particularly... Oh, wow, this this is embarrassing. Daft, cut this out because I'm blanking on the names of <laughs> Dear Evan Hansen's composers. Pasek and Paul. Oh, yeah. Went on to influence many modern Broadway composers, especially Pasek and Paul, who are, I would say, the golden boys of musical theater in this day and age. And even film at this point. Mm-hmm. Both the arranging and the orchestration is great. The arranging, it doesn't isn't credited specifically on the Internet Broadway database, but I believe it's also done by Jason Robert Brown, who does a lot of his own arranging. Mm. That's good to know. The vocal arranging especially is just, I think, some of the best I've ever heard. I think I would go on record and say that. I have no problem saying that. Like, even better than American Psycho? (laughs) 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 The vocal arranging is the second best I've ever heard after American Psycho. (laughs) Uh, And the orchestration is uh, is incredible as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Elliot, you're one of... I have a great deal of respect for you as a musician. We went to music school together, at least a little bit. Where is, um, what do you think of this music? I think it might be JRB's best score, mm-hmm. potentially. Yeah. It's interesting because he's done so much since. Yeah. But I, I always find myself coming back to Parade because it's so, it feels like that's where he kind of found a way to integrate all of the different ideas that are there in his other work. And specifically, like, some of the uh, motivic writing, right? So, so mm-hmm. um, the use and reuse of different melodies throughout yeah. the show is insane to the point where I didn't realize until after I had done the show, after I had obsessed over the show for four or five years, that uh, Leo's first solo song, How Can I Call This Home, yep. where he's mm-hmm. talking about is feeling this home like a fish out of water. From Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Is yes. this home? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is this home? <laughs> And then, of course, his uh, um, end of the first act statement at the trial, yeah. it's hard to speak my heart, my mm-hmm. my repertoire from when I was a teen, uh, is the exact same melody. Yep. Slightly reharmonized, just uh, at a different tempo. But it's the exact same tune. And then, moreover, the fact that the first uh, little pattern we hear in the show at Old Red Hills of Home, yep. the accompaniment yes. goes... And that is... Of course, the melody to the soaring love duet in the end of the second act. All the wasted time, all the million hours. Oh, so good. It's incredibly layered, stupidly layered. Lucille at the very end. Does she recall Old Red Hills or does she recall How Can I Call This Home? She recalls one of the first two songs. She does Old Red Hills. Yeah, she Leo, totally. Oh, Leo. And the, sh- the Shema. The Shema. The Kaddish at the end as well. The sh- yeah, mm-hmm. is Old Red Hills. It's the through line, the thread of that throughout the score is remarkable. And you wonder how much of that is 
how, how much of that is a young Jason Robert Brown, and I'm not saying this to disparage him at all, quite, but rather to offer an explanation for why his first big score is his strongest in a lot, in a lot of ways, both to Elliot and me. I wonder if a lot of it is having Hal Prince there. That's such a Hal Prince thing. Mm -hmm. Things that, I mean, Hal Prince is not a composer, but has worked with so many brilliant composers. Mm -hmm. And so many of Hal Prince's shows use motific writing so strongly. And I think I think part of it also comes with being younger and a more emerging artist is I think people feel a little more free to make a big strong choices like that when they're uh yeah. when they're not so much under a microscope yet or when they don't know any better. Right? Well, and <laughs> yeah. and when I I remember watching some backstage interview when they were getting ready for Bridges of Madison County. Mm -hmm. I said that weird. Bridges of Madison County. <laughs> it's because it's how we all feel yeah. about that show. That's why you said it like that. You mean the Bridges of? Yeah, Bridges, the bridges of. of Madison County. Bridges. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, he was talking about that show and how he, he wanted it to be his Traviata. And I thought like, there's no way if you build it up in your head that it has to be your like magnum opus, your number one thing. Mm -hmm. There's no way you can possibly reach that. Versus Parade, he was in his, what, mid-20s? Early 20s. I imagine he's just like, my goal is to go to work and not be fired by Hal Prince. Right? <laughs> like, literally, <laughs> you right? Know? Yeah. It really simplifies things. All I've written up to this point is a collection of songs I'd written over the past 15 years of my life as a cabaret. Mm -hmm. And now I just need to go to work and not get fired by Hal Prince. <laughs> uh, well, also, Hal Prince, which we'll talk about him a little more later, but he does does mention in interview after interview how much he loves finding new talent. It's like one of his favorite things. Yeah. And so I think in him is this sense of mentorship because he had that a lot when he was younger. So maybe he just really has a knack for, you know, mentorship and a clear vision of what he needs from a person and he's able to draw that out no matter their age oh, and there's no question he's um he makes the right call here if we look back on the 90s on the rest of the composers who are jason robert brown's contemporaries mm -hmm. like we said um sondheim is just finishing up his real golden years and people like uh, michael john lacusa and uh, janine tesori are writing nice stuff but nothing that's sustained like parade you know what i mean mm-hmm so out of uh, out of ten monkeys, how many playbills does the music get? Elliot, you're our guest. Why don't you go first? I want to. I mean, I would give it a, a ten. Yeah, I'm. I'm giving it. I'm giving it a ten. I a piece of me wants to, you know, never give a ten because it can always be better. But I think, <laughs> I think, you know what? I'm gonna go out on a limb and and give it a ten. I'm going to go just slightly lower than you. I'm gonna give it like a nine or a nine point five. I, uh, and I don't fault you for a 10 at all, just because on this most recent watch and listen, some of the, the, cause there's the music's divided into two categories into hard modern musical theater mm -hmm. and then kind of Southern pastiche. Yes. And the Southern pastiche stuff gets a little samey. Yep. Mm. So that would be my, if I had, if I would gun to my head, I had to draw a complaint. It would be that. What about you, Jill? So you said nine, nine and a half. Is that what you said? Let's say nine. Okay. Let's say nine. Great. So. Here is our first issue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Oh, no. Okay. So our job at this podcast is to try to figure out what went wrong. Yep. While I don't believe that the music is in, in I shouldn't say anyway, but is super responsible, at, you know, for this flop because it is gorgeous and intelligent and yeah, I just, I love it. I think the music is stunning. I think that 
the song, the home song, how can I call this home, might actually be one of the issues with the play (laughs) because because it doesn't allow you to really deeply get to know or understand the character of Leo. And we need somebody to root for. We need someone to like deeply be on their side. And I think that because the character of Leo is a little more closed off, I I think, yeah, it's so hard to articulate Mm -hmm. because I don't think that it's really anybody's fault. I just think that kind of that might be that moment that you're like, oh, I wish I just knew him better. There is an interview with a young Jason Robert Brown where he talks about how much trouble he had cracking Leo's voice as a songwriter. Yes, totally. And how, um, how can I call this home was the last song he wrote for the show, actually. Yes, it is. And now that now that you mention it, it's very fascinating because how can you, how can you call this home? I'll allow um, Elliot to talk about this more in a second as the person who's actually lived these moments on stage. But just upon examining it right now off the top of my head, that song's mostly, it sucks here in the South. I'm unhappy in the South. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, you know what, it's, it's interesting because, you know, doing the show, I can't really, I don't look, you don't want to look at your character with judgment, right? No, right. of course not. Yep. But as like watching it and, and listening back this last time, I thought like, God, he like, he kind of sucks. And <laughs> historically speaking, he did kind of suck. But the point was he was innocent. Right. Yeah. And so they definitely don't, um, don't embellish on his personality. Mm-hmm. And he, like he really, he really was a very dry and kind of cold human by all accounts. And that was part of the, that was part of the problem is his personality just didn't fit with this culture that he was mm-hmm. in. And that caused undue suspicion. Right, right. And I, I was reading too, there is some opinion that uh, that song also kind of casts this light where the show the show judges the South rather than like presenting a balance of things, right? The South is bigoted, it is bad, it is the worst. And it was interesting watching and, and hearing kind of a New York audience laughing at the jokes about the South because mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, this is... <laughs> That's how people in New York feel about people in Georgia. It's what they think. It's a confirmation of their biases. Yes. And I want to hold on to exactly what you're talking about now because I think it plays into a lot of the reasons why Parade did not run past 85 performances. Okay, but before that, Jill, what's your rating? <laughs> Sorry. No, this is, this is super fascinating. <laughs> I, I feel like I really diverted, but I think- it's very important. I needed to address that because it is technically part of the music. Absolutely it is. Mm-hmm. But I, I would agree it's a nine for me. I think the orchestrations, the arranging, all of it, brilliant. We get from A to B in all the songs. I love it. Nine. But what about the book? <laughs> <gasps> First of all, a little bit of fascinating context on the book. Alfred Urey has a personal connection to this case, to this historical case. Oh, it's so fascinating. His great uncle owned the pencil factory where Leo was a manager, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. That was the site for all of this occurring. So Alfred Urey talks about in interviews how this case has always been a part of his life, how his family will leave the room if if it's ever brought up or if it's ever discussed, and how writing the script for this musical was almost an act of catharsis for him in examining this story. And I think that's very fascinating. I think he talked about, in an interview, he talked about how in his household, because he grew up there, obviously, in in Georgia, and 
in his household, people sort of didn't talk about it. They didn't want to. And yeah, yeah. he would bring it up and they would avoid the subject. And so I think having a person who is so closely related to these circumstances in this story, it was a very wise decision. So do you like the book? Either of you, do you like the book? I, <laughs> my thought on the book is... It's fine. <laughs> I don't know. Yep. I don't have I didn't I didn't feel strongly about it. I I remember in doing the show, I liked I I didn't have any words that I had to say that I felt awkward mm-hmm. about saying. Mm-hmm. It all felt like a person talking. You weren't frustrated with the book ever. Yeah, and I I didn't have too much trouble kind of getting from A to B. It all all of the beats made sense. Great. But as far as like, you know, scenes that blow me away or or moments and of dialogue that, you know, make my jaw drop. I don't know that that's, that that's there for me, mm-hmm. if it needs to be there. It's definitely hard to say because, there, first of all, there's not a ton of book. Most of this show is music. And definitely the music takes all the big moments. The book never really gets the big moments. Yeah. It's, the book is there to get us to the next song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But I think like Elliot said, the judgment of the Southern folk yeah. is evident in, in the book, commenting on it, um, those caricatures of the people and the, you know, the DA and the, I guess, the governor. Yep. Like those kinds of characters really are recognizable, but also don't afford us a lot of, um, I don't know, depth, I guess, to accompany that music. So I think actually the book might be our one of our big problems here. I was going to bring this up because if we're, <laughs> if when we talk book, we're also talking play structure, which in the past we've kind of lumped that in with that. Mm-hmm. This play, as it appeared on Broadway, has some structure problems, namely the uh, the character of this uh, this reporter. Oh yeah. There's this reporter who appears early on in act 1. He's a really bored reporter who's been assigned to the Atlanta Georgia beat and nothing ever happens and he's frustrated and then boom a big murder happens. This is music to his ears as someone who just needs something to report on and he sings a hell of a song just as a song in itself. It's a great song and is one of the characters that fans the flames towards um igniting negative public opinion against Leo Frank. Mm-hmm. And then he disappears for a long time. So long. And pops up a little bit at the top of act 2 and never appears again. Yeah, he he kind of takes a turn as a as a surprise narrator for like <laughs> What, maybe 20 minutes at the top? Yeah, not even. Two seconds. Yeah, <laughs> but a very prominent 10, 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. He has a whole he has a whole sequence, and then he goes, bye. I think he comes back at the finale to give Lucille her, uh, Leo's wedding ring. Oh, sure, that's But right. other than that, you don't come away from that show remembering his name. I, I literally cannot remember his name, and I watched it less than 24 hours ago. <laughs> I think they were trying to do that thing where they're like commenting on how the media and the mob mentality and the you know that whole Mm -hmm. thing i think that's maybe the character they were trying to use to make that device happen but the issue is that like i think that structure works way better in satire like with in chicago i agree completely correct me if i'm wrong elliot this show went through a bunch of revisions after its time on Broadway. Oh, yeah. And you actually ended up doing this revised version, not the version that we saw. Yeah, so they did, I know they did a few revisions for, uh, they did a, a national tour following the closure on Broadway, and then they did a production at the Donmar Warehouse in London in, I think, 2007. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, directed by Rob Ashford, who's a big name in Broadway, though oh, yes. oddly for, you know, 
more lavish musicals, things like Thoroughly Modern Millie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that Don Mar Warehouse production, they went under some uh, pretty big drastic rewrites, including writing out a lot of that uh, Brit Craig reporter character, cutting his first song entirely. <laughs> Who is that his name? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so the new version does kind of drop the uh, newspaper narration to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And loses, loses a couple of great songs, but I think probably gains a lot narratively. Yeah, and it and it gains a couple good songs oh, really? too, which is nice. They they have there are a couple replacements that are nice, and some that are just fine. <laughs> In the end, they they tighten the show. It's shorter. Um, it drags less, and it's a little more clearly focused on on Leo and Lucille. And I like to think that Leo is a little more sympathetic. Oh, fascinating, but barely. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So, what we're judging, though, is the book that appeared on Broadway. Mm -hmm. So, out of 10 monkeys, how many playbills do we give the book? I mean, if I had to take a leap, I would say I'd give it a 7. Because I think it could obviously have been much better and solved a lot of problems for the show. But also, I think we've all read books that were... We're far, far, far more in need of revision than this. Like, this is... I'll take this one, you know? that's a great point. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. I'm less generous than you. I'd say five. Okay. I think if we're if we're lumping structure problems in with the book as a judgment call, I think the structure of this show is one of the big challenges of this show. Mm-hmm. And so I think a better structured book would have led to a longer life for this show and a better audience experience. I love this show to death. And I was having trouble staying focused, giving it a watch all the way through last night. Yeah. And that's someone who already not only loves the music, but has a deep nostalgic connection with the music. How can a new audience be expected to stick with that and Mm. not lose their attention, you know? So five, is that what you said? Five is my rating, yeah. I I actually fall in the middle of the two of you. I would say about a six. Great. I agree with both of you on that. And I also found this really funny quote from the... Variety review of Parade from 98. The writer was Charles Isherwood. Charles writes <laughs> about the book. Quote, Leo is taken into custody, parentheses. We never learn much about why he's the natural suspect. Perhaps the beat cops had already read the musical's book. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> like, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, and I was like, "Huh. Yeah, no, that's a that's a plot point we should maybe clarify." Yeah. Um <laughs> because in the real case, there's um some pretty damning testimony or I guess statements that get introduced mm-hmm. before the arrest, if I'm not mistaken, whereas in the play we see them on the stand, right? Or is there a song where they're being interviewed? I can't recall. There's there's some interview early on. Mm. But it's mostly the stand. It's mostly the testimony comes from the stand. Right. That we see in the show anyway. Yep. But yeah, I just thought that was so funny because I hadn't even thought of that. I was just like, oh yeah, because it's theater and like just arrest him because we need to get the show moving. Yep. But like, <laughs> but why? <laughs> um, so that's why I feel we're at a six because there's a couple of like tricky moments where I'm like, we could have used more clarity and then a couple of really lovely, well fleshed out scenes. Especially, I think, between the Lucille and Leo. I agree. And you know what? Their last scene together especially is like... Um, oh, 
And their scene leading up into All the Wasted Time is a, is a mainstay of musical theater scene study classes the world ah, round, ah. and it is for a reason. It, <laughs> and it know? is for a reason, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yay, we did it. We talked about the music, the lyrics, and the book. All right. Well, let's figure out what else was going on here. Let's talk about the direction and the choreo. This show was directed and conceived by Hal Prince. If we don't know who that is, we have a problem. A little nobody. Go go look up Hal Prince. Thank us later. He's a really cool dude. Uh, music direction by Eric Stern. It was choreographed by Patricia Birch. The assistant MD was Henry Aronson, our pal. Oh, dear friend. Dear friend of the podcast, Henry Aronson. <laughs> Lovely man. And the final creative team credit was the assistant choreographer who was Rob Ashford. So now we have this sort of through line of Rob Ashford's connection to this show, but also it was his first credit as an assistant choreographer because up until this point, he was like a swing and a dance captain, um, but this was his first um, creative team role. He's a dear, dear friend of the podcast, dear friend, dear colleague. (laughs) Yeah, good guy. He lent me money once. It was great. Oh, wow. That's so nice of him. When I, when I, I really needed it. <laughs> what am I doing? Let's keep going, please. <laughs> anyway, those are the those are the creative team members. Also, I, should, I always should say a million and one assistants yep. who are instrumental in any show. Kicked ass and are wonderful. Yes. Let's talk about the direction. Paul, you mentioned before on this podcast that it's not something that you super know about i have a hard time identifying i have a hard time judging direction with anything other than very broad strokes this show seems very static yep (laughs) and we don't get as deep into a lot of the emotional depth of the characters as i would like we we delve into a ton of stuff, but never quite, I think we've started to discuss this already, especially with Leo Frank, never quite into more than I'm unhappy to be living in the South instead of living in Brooklyn. I'm very grumpy with everyone from the South and um, virtually everyone from the South is one step away from being like a mustache twirling, snidely whiplash style villain. <laughs> uh, yep. No, yeah. I think that's a... That's definitely an observation, an accurate <laughs> It an is absolutely accurate an observation. observation. <laughs> <laughs> Participation credit goes too. Yay, good job, Paul. <laughs> Elliot, is there anything that you noticed about the uh, direction that you wanted to call attention to? Well, I mean, to take a ride on the static train for just a little <laughs> bit. I did, I did notice, and this ties in a little bit... <laughs> This ties in a little bit to the to the design, but I noticed halfway through the uh, the trial scene mm-hmm. that they had ceiling fans on stage. That they that they had set ceiling fans because I was like, what's what's what interfering that with that there? light yeah. there? <laughs> what's happening? And I realized, oh, the reason my eye is drawn to the set ceiling fans is it's because they're the only things moving on the stage. Yep, yep, yep. Which, you know what? Which props to the uh, designers for (laughs) putting that in. Props to the designers. That's a funny thing to say. And I I don't know what you do with it, because on the other hand, I when uh, in a lot of the dancing moments, I felt like, 
oh, should we should we be dancing? Yeah. Yeah, like, does this mob need to dance? Yeah. Like, is that, do we need to dance with the flames? Like, is <laughs> yes. that the moment? <laughs> That's so funny to me because there was other moments where I was like, man, we're just, we're just sitting here. It sounds incredible, but like I could be looking at my phone and I'm still getting the same thing. Could we, could we move a little bit more? Right. A lot of movement where you didn't need it and a lot of static where you needed movement. And you know what? I think part of this has to go towards the scale of the production because what mm-hmm. what's yeah. changed about Parade in addition to just, you know, changes to the book is it's a much more intimate show now. They added a lot of role right. doubling. It's It's a small, medium cast musical now. And that's how it should be. It's absolutely how it should be, yeah. So I think you're right. I think that it was just too much for what could be a more pared down show. Because like we've said, the music can really support your experience with the show. You don't need really a lot of extras. I also, there's like a moment where there's like bleachers that show up. Yes. I think it is for the mob song. What when the when the what is it? When the, when the flood, flood comes. comes. When the flood comes. They've had, that they've, song. Had, they've had these bleachers in play. They were like the stands for the for the courtroom. We already saw this the year before in 1997 with Sideshow. The bleachers don't work. Can we just <laughs> stop with the bleachers? Maybe they were the same bleachers. <laughs> oh, good point. Have you thought of that? Maybe they, in a money-saving oh. endeavor, saw Sideshow and went, "Man, those bleachers work, hey." I have this really, really funny image in my mind of Hal Prince doing like a tour of the theater they're going to do do a parade in and he like he trips on something and it's like the corner of a bleacher and he's like, this is this is it. This is what we need to do. Hal, it's about bleachers. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's movement where we don't need it. I really honestly like I. Love having a choreographer in the room, but I don't think choreography is the right way to go. I think it's musical staging because I think with swipes, with transitions, that could have been a better use of of a movement person. Mm. That's what I think. And of course, there's some really beautiful moments that Hal Prince directs, yeah. some nice scene work, some effective scene work, but it's usually best when it's like two people in the scene. Kind of a hot, hot take from this podcast. Hal Prince is a good director, mm. you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> so there's, oh, yeah. there's, there's some, some expertise there that's just on show. There's no question. Totally. Is it safe to say that we're discussing direction and choreo in the same breath right now? I think so, because there's really not much to say about choreo specifically, I don't think. In that case, I wanted to mention a couple of moments, one direction moment, or I guess maybe they're both kind of musical staging and choreo moments that I really loved. Okay. One was the, the scene leading into the courtroom, People of Atlanta. Mm. Mm-hmm. Jeez, it's incredible. Everything about it works. You just see it and you're like, this is what the whole show could have been. And it would have been the next Les Mis. Right. And then um, come up to my office. <gasps> yes. Yeah, my favorite. It's three three women describing situations that didn't happen mm-hmm. or mis- misrepresenting situations where Leo Frank was inappropriate with them. Correct. In the workplace. It not only features a really about-face turn from uh, from Brent Carver... Um, as he portrays this fictionalized version of the character. And the choreo just works so well. Yeah. You know what? That's a great point. There's these two moments where everything just kind of clicks into place and you're like, oh, geez, it's brilliant. It's incredible. I agree. I think the that is a wonderful example of when it works. I love that moment. 
But I think more than that, and I'll be the first to give my rating then, um, out of 10 monkeys, I would give the direction and choreo, like I'd say five, but it's even a stretch. I just feel weird giving Hal Prince lower than a five. <laughs> he can take it. Going into this, I was like, how on earth can anyone give a bad review to Parade? Parade's an incredible show, because I don't ever listen to it, is an incredible show that takes a tragic piece of history and humanizes it with beautiful music. How could anyone, how could you give a bad review to this? And then I watched it and I thought, oh, no, I, I understand. Sure. The direction <laughs> and the choreo just aren't working for it. So four, I'd say four then. If we think that Hal Prince can take it. Yeah. Yeah. And Elliot, where do you land out of 10 playbills? How many monkeys do you give the direction and choreo? Mm, I mean, if we're talking in terms of monkeys, <laughs> it changes everything. <laughs> I know. I, so I, I wonder, I have a hesitation and I'm going to continue my trend of being a little more generous with my ratings. Um, maybe because I don't have to do this every couple of weeks. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm going to give it a six. And, and here's my, here's my excuse <laughs> is I think as is the case with a lot of good creative team elements, I don't think good direction always necessarily calls attention to itself. I didn't have a tough time. I didn't have too many moments where I thought, oh, yikes, that choice, you know, why? <laughs> I didn't think like, why is Lucille delivering her big number upstage center? Right. <laughs> but it was, uh, and so because of that, I wonder maybe was this kind of sneaky, I'm going to get out of the way of the work direction mm. that wasn't, you know, s seeking to call attention to itself as, you know, look at this amazing bias I put the set on for this scene or, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> so I think, um, so it's a six for me, six monkeys. Yeah, that's, I think that's generous and that's fair. Good for you, dude. I like your reasoning. I think that's really good. I think that's a nice observation. Okay. I'm going to do a five, oh, I think. We're just right in line this whole podcast. <laughs> I go low, Elliot goes high, Jill threads the yeah. needle. Is that a sports term? Is it? No, it's a knitting term. It's a sewing term. You thread the needle. Yeah, no, I know. But I think you, you use it in the context of like when something is like exactly correct. No, Jill, you use it in the terms of sewing when you're sewing something together. <laughs> That's what it is. It's a sewing term. I think I just, <laughs> I think I've heard it used in hockey. So I associate it with sports. Mm. You're thinking of a uh, of hat trick or goal. <laughs> Those are <laughs> no, hockey terms. No, I'm not. <laughs> Oh, I was thinking of ice skating. Oh, that was so stupid of me. Yeah. Okay, now I don't even remember what I gave it. Like a five? You gave it a five. Yeah. It's a very fair rating. Elliot, I think I really understand what you're saying about not necessarily noticing the direction and that actually might mean it's good. I think maybe just by comparison, I might have this idea of what Hal Prince's work is. And I think that when it's not what what we've um, seen the most, like Evita or, yep. you know, the, the big Weber productions, you sort of kind of go like, oh, he didn't do much, but actually, you know, he probably did a great job. So five for him, five for choreo too, wow. mainly because I kind of, I'm like, do we need it? Like, do we need full choreo? Can we just have staging? Yep. I feel comfortable with those. Let's talk about design. Scenic design by Ricardo Hernandez. Costume design by Judith Dolan. Lighting by Howell Binkley. 
Sound design by Jonathan Deans, and hair and wig design by Paul Huntley. Everything's very blue, hey? Very blue. (laughs) It's a blue show. Everything felt really stark, I guess? Colors included. It's actually very fascinating because I only have two notes here. One is bomb-ass set, and that's from the very top of the show. Oh, okay. And then I didn't write anything else because after kind of this initial reveal, because we've got the opening the opening soloist, and he's kind of in this dark spot. Mm-hmm. And then there's this big reveal of this um, of the set, and there's this projection of the parade, and it's kind of this awesome set, and it's kind of, there's some hype going on, mm-hmm. and there's almost this feeling of, like, um, metal girders and stuff, eh? Yep. Um, and there's projection, they're projecting this parade, and I was like, oh, even from this... Um, Shitty camera bootleg I'm watching. I can imagine this would have been awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that big tree. That big, big tree. Oh, and this, and this tree. enormous tree. How did I miss that? It's an incredible. <laughs> it's very striking. Mm-hmm. And then nothing else happens with it. And the, everything just stays very stark. So literally the only other note I have is very blue. <laughs> <laughs> so that is my contribution to the conversation. I look forward to hearing what you guys have to say. I also didn't really notice the sets in a big way, but mm-hmm. I the sets came up in in reviews a lot, and I noticed a lot of people talking about uh, the big oak tree that's kind of always there mm-hmm. on stage, and that it's supposed right. to be this uh, constant reminder. Uh, because it's the first thing we sing about, right? The young soldier says, I've carved yeah. our names in the trunk of this tree. Mm-hmm. Right. So the tree is this symbol of the old, the grand old South. And then at the end of the show, it is, of course, spoiler alert, where Leo Frank is hanged. Yep. It's supposed to be this big looming presence, but and maybe it was in the room, but on the grainy, grainy bootleg I watched, I didn't particularly notice it after the first scene. No. Mm-hmm. And even if it's because I, I, after the bootleg, I went and I was able to find like a sizzle reel that they'd made in 1999 as well. You know, if we're talking big set pieces of shows, once again, if we're going to compare this to something like Phantom or Cats, and I think we have to because both Hal Prince and Live Ent are involved with this. Mm-hmm. You're always going to, in a promo for Cats, you're going to have the tire. In a promo for Phantom, you're going to have the chandelier at some point. Like, you don't even see the tree. You know what I mean? Nope. Mm-hmm. It is not prominent enough as a design element to even be included in promo. Maybe they were like, we want it to be a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Like, maybe they were like, we need a big wow moment when the curtain comes up. <laughs> we need we and need these tickets. We need these ticket sales to slow down. We can't get everyone in. Yeah. A, <laughs> calm down, everyone. Everyone can see yeah. parade. <laughs> My notes are: yes, there's a big tree, a second level, some bleachers, a bed, and I think that's it. Like it was very like I was just having a hard time understanding. Oh, that's it. That really is it. Uh, It's so hard to know when you're not there in person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (sighs) It seems to me like the set design isn't pulling its weight and the lighting design is trying to overcompensate for it. Mm. Mm. Good point. Good point. And, you know, I want to I want to echo myself a little bit that it's it's just such a huge space. Yeah. Yeah. They're at Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. And it's just a monstrously large stage. For such a tiny show. Right. And a, like, what do you even do with <laughs> Like, what do you do? Like, it's this tough thing, right? Where they, Lincoln Center was one of the co-producers on this, if I'm correct, with Livent. Mm-hmm. As an organization, Lincoln Center is the perfect theater company to be involved with bringing this show to New York. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this specific space that they have to work with is definitely not the right space for it. Yeah. 
Well, it is the right space maybe for the show they were doing, like the show they ended up doing. Right. But maybe what it's become, it's just now that we know better what serves this story best, which is like smaller scale, more intimate venue. I think we can look back on Lincoln Center and be like, oh yeah, that was huge. But maybe at the time, that wouldn't have been something that crossed their minds necessarily. Yeah, they were like, this is going to be the next Kiss of the Spider Roman. This could even be the next Les Mis or something. Totally. There's even flags like Les Mis. <laughs> Different flags. There are. Certainly Absolutely. not the same yep. uh, <laughs> Same flags. <laughs> and, there, and there's Brent Carver like Spider Roman. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> It could really go either way. <laughs> so, out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are we giving the design? Elliot. I mean, I'll give it, I'm going to give it a five. I think it could have uh, served uh, the story a little bit more and maybe uh, maybe popped a little more. It's a musical. Why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my very uneducated opinion on the design. No, I love it. <laughs> I'm going to say six. Let's say six, because I, I did have that initial moment of like, oh, this is bomb. Mm-hmm. And I never had that reaction again. But that initial moment is something. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. I'm going to go five and a half. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think six, but I'm only saying six because, again, in my mind, I'm just picturing Hal Prince stubbing his toe on some bleachers and deciding like, that was the way they should go. <laughs> Um, (laughs) I don't think it was like totally off the mark. Although (laughs) our friend from Variety, Charles (laughs) Isherwood, wrote that Ricardo Hernandez's attractive but gloomy sets are dominated by the heft of a giant leafless portentous looking tree. Like he did not like this tree. He was like, oh. He was not in. (laughs) But I think it's striking. I think it's quite nice. So... Paul, Elliot, I'm having so much fun. Most fun I've had all week. And I would really love it if we could continue to have fun. I feel like we've got at least another hour in us. (gasps) Does that mean what I think it means? Tune in next week for more Parade with Elliot Lazar. Woohoo! Yeah, sure guys, we can do a part two. We definitely consulted Daphne the producer about this. It's fine. Hi everyone, this is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod, on Twitter at monkeyplaybills, or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theatre podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on... More parade, apparently.